morning. Hello there. This is Henry Harris. Welcome to another edition of the Spiritual Foundations of Mental Health. Today's topic, Purim, a blueprint for transformation. Yes, we are fast approaching the festival of Purim. And I want to remind everyone who is listening to this that I do receive input and uh, comments and questions, and I welcome them. You can reach me at henry at jewishwellbeing.org. So let's begin with our basic setting the basics, uh, setting the table. What do we mean by the spiritual foundations of mental health? We mean to say that you and I, uh, the foundations of our mental health is not our past. It's not the circumstances of our past or our present. Rather, there is an unconditional and spiritual foundation to the base, to our well-being. We are constantly and currently always was and always will be connected to a source of wisdom, a source of divine energy that is animating our consciousness. Now, we have a wonderful role to play. We get to be aware. We get to see at the most fundamental level, we get to see and acknowledge that we are on the receiving end of this flow. And the ability to glimpse that, the ability to sense that, that we're experiencing an internal weather system, even as the world around us seems to be uh, shaping and affecting and directing our experience of life, even as it looks like our feelings and moods and psychological experience are being shaped and created by all of the stuff that we see out there. In fact, there's something simpler, very, very simple and very beautiful that is actually unfolding. And that is that we are all living in the presence of this divine source, this formless uh, it's not of this world. It's a, it's an energy that is not of this world. It is the energy that allows everything of this world to be moment to moment to moment. And that includes my psychological experience. I don't pull the levers on my moods and feelings and new thoughts and ups and downs. I don't pull those levers. And now it's true my misunderstanding about how those things work, or alternatively, my understanding about how those things work definitely is impactful. It definitely makes a big difference. But understanding the basic truth changes the way I go about viewing and relating to my experience of life. It, it, it just radically changes the way I interact with my own internal state for the good, for the good when we get a glimpse as to, as to how this truth works. So as I've expressed in the past, the, the, a simple explanation of, or a simple example of where and how we might misunderstand this truth is that we get hit with a feeling, of, an unpleasant feeling, a, frightening, a frightful feeling, an anxious or angry or resentful feeling. And it, the most natural inclination is to kind of experience this internal protest like, no, no, don't want this. Get away from it. Get out from under it. And then as quickly as that kind of initial like, no, can't be with this feeling arises, there's a sense of like, well, then what can I do about it? You know, how do I, how do I, how do I get out from it? Or how do I get away from it? And then by definition, I'm going to identify, well, where is it coming from? Right? I mean, that's a very simple and elemental human instinct to want to uh, help ourselves. And in order to help ourselves, we have to identify the source of our, of our problem. So when we get that feeling and we have this kind of very quick, not fully visible 
uh, rejection or desire to flee from that feeling, we look and we see, oh, it's coming from him or my past or whatever it might be that we come to identify. And then we start innocently but mistakenly hankering down, hunkering down to analyze and relate to, react to that thing. That's the source of our fearful feelings or our upset feelings. Well, in that process of hunkering down to strategize and analyze and react to the thing that we believe is the source of our feelings, we, we actually kind of bind ourselves to it. We, we amplify it. And whereas the normal human experience is that like a, like a child, like if you watch a little kid, he's kind of up and down and up and down and up and down. He's moody, he's, he's moody, he's happy, he's cranky, he's peaceful. Like he's, his moods are flowing and there's just kind of a, um, there's a somewhat of a, 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 there's just a flow to it. Now he has no capacity for real self-awareness about that. And he doesn't have the capacity to consider what's true about it or what he'd like to do in response to his feelings. He, he He's, you know, that, that one and a half year old doesn't have that, but, but the, on a certain level, that one and a half year old is not so different than I am uh, in that I am also kind of flowing with moods. So the nature of a human being is to flow with moods and to kind of get wound up and then reset and get wound up and then reset and get wound up and then reset. But to the degree that I'm through my mistaken innocent but mistaken perception that, wait, I'm wound up right now. Let's identify the source. Okay, I have an idea of what the source is. Let's now start to analyze and strategize and react to that source. In that manner, I, I, I inhibit the kind of reset process. I inhibit and deepen my connection to the feeling that I'm upset about or that I don't like because I'm dug into this is an issue, this is an issue, how can I react to, analyze, strategize? And innocently, I amplify that whole experience and I inhibit the reset experience. Uh, it's, it's always striking to me when people relate, people kind of come, when they start to learn about these ideas and they get interested and they sense that there's something to it, but it'll still happen regularly. They'll say, okay, but w w how do I use this when I get into my real low? You know, like, what can I do? And one way I respond to them is to say, well, how did you, are you in that low right now? And usually they're not, you know, usually, usually they're not in the low at the moment they're asking. And so I say, well, how did you get out of the last low? And they pause for a second and they might, they might say, you know, I really don't know. They might say that, which is a wonderful opportunity for me to say, well, I'd like you to consider that perhaps it happened despite your cleverness, despite your commitment to be in a good state of mind, despite your knowledge of some of these spiritual truths. Perhaps it happened despite all those things. Sometimes they'll say, oh, because um, there was a fire alarm in the office, or there was a friend that came over and we had a nice tea together or whatever. And they'll say, that's why I think I got out of my low. And, you know, I don't, they're not, they're not always open to hearing, well, that could have been a helpful distraction that allowed you to become distracted from your preoccupation and your analysis 
but I don't know how to advise you to distract yourself. I think it's going to be more helpful to realize that we have a natural flow and a natural reset process. We have a natural winding up, tense, angry, fearful, hurt, sad, whatever the insecure feeling is. And we have a natural tendency to then unwind and reset. And glimpsing that is just a such a game changer. I, I as I share on a regular basis, I, I'm I'm sharing in this, I'm sharing here a logic, a kind of relatively straightforward way in which this works. I don't have a technique to how to integrate it, but I can assure you that to the degree that you're curious and interested about this psychological truth, about the truth about our psychological experience of where and how it's coming from, how it's it's coming from something beyond this world, not of this world. Even as we're going through our lives, having real events and circumstances, the psychological experience we're having is not directly shaped by those events and experiences to the degree that we're curious and interested in that truth, I can assure you that our nature is to wake up to and to glimpse this truth. And when and as we do, it's amazing how well, how, how much we discover our capacity to navigate our lives. It's just astonishing. People throughout history have encountered really significant challenges and yet have come to see a path forward and find their way forward with wholeness of heart and mind. Even if there was pain or difficulty involved, they, they, they have, we have found our ways forward in so many instances. Of course, unfortunately, in many instances, people do not find their way forward. I would suggest it has to do with the degree to which they glimpse and sense this understanding. They might not be able to articulate it, but that doesn't mean that one doesn't know it. One can know this understanding. One can have a perception of this understanding, even without the ability to describe it intellectually. We're talking about the logic of it because it's just helpful to, to kind of point ourselves in a, in a certain direction. So that's our intro, and now I'm talking about the topic of Purim, which is fast arriving, and Purim is a wondrous opportunity because Purim is is really a, a, like a blueprint for transformation. I'll share with you the basics of the of the story, and then where and how I see the relevance of this uh, wisdom that we talk about week to week in the story. So Purim, Purim is uh, is the main the main event of Purim is is where and how a villain named Haman decrees a decree of annihilation against the Jewish people. Um, the, the, our, our commentaries explain that it, it was a process set in motion. The, the decree was actually the result of a spiritual desensitization that the Jewish people experienced. That, in fact, it was their inability to see the de- deeper truth about lives about life. It was there getting distracted and invested in kind of the form of life as opposed to the spiritual truth behind life that in fact made it harder, made it harder for them to see, or rather it 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 introduced a greater possibility for this decree to come about. So what happened? There was a great it was a great feast. The the king of the of Persia Ushered, uh, he he hosted a huge feast for all of his uh, kingdom, 
And it was an extraordinary demonstration of opulence, but it was also a demonstration of values that were not consistent with Jewish values. And he invited the Jews to come. And the Jews felt that they had no choice but to come. Now, the sages said, don't do it. It's not worth it. But the Jews felt, look, what can we do? We, we're, host, we're guests in this man's kingdom, and we ought to, owe our, we ought to show our gratitude for being uh, allowed to live in his kingdom and to express our, our appreciation and show him a certain amount of uh, honor. The sages says, no, don't do it, because in the process of showing him honor, you're going you're gonna to dishonor the king of kings. But it was too much for the Jewish people, and they went. They felt they had no choice. So at that moment already, they're kind of prioritizing the world, this world and the form of this world over the formless, the formless being the will of, of the single simple source. Now, it's true. It is a value to show respect and honor to the, uh, to the uh, persons of, of authority in this world. That's a real value, but never at the expense of showing dishonor to the king of kings. But that's what they did. Now, in the process, they kind of contributed to the blurring of and the obscuring, the hiding of the truth of that king of kings. The The actions of the Jewish people can either, um, can either make more clear the single simple source, the truth about the single simple source by our loyalty to that, to the will behind all life, or by paying attention to and showing deference to kind of the laws of the physical world and the laws of the political reality, we can obscure the presence of the king. And when the king of kings, is his presence is obscured, then there's more and more power to those who would seek to rebel against the king. And Haman was one of those guys. So he established a decree. It was the decree of annihilation. And the hero of the story, the heroes of the story, Mordechai and Esther, are now faced with the, with, the, with the challenge of looking past the form of this world, looking past the absolute nature of the decree. It was meant to be taken seriously. It's not like they ignored it and said, ah, there's nothing to this world. There's nothing to the form of life. We can, only, we can ignore it altogether. No, they didn't ignore it altogether. Rather, they saw it as itself coming, as coming as a message. It was coming as a message. It was an opportunity for the for the for the Jewish people to realize, you know, it's true that the earthly king and his prime minister are plotting an annihilation of the Jewish people, but there's no absolute power to that decree. The earthly king and his prime minister are actually not themselves owners of power. They have their power on loan. They have their power on loan, and our job, like in any, like with every circumstance of this life, is to realize that whatever is happening and unfolding before me, its power is on loan, and it doesn't possess inherent or independent power to to follow through, and create or accomplish. And so, Mordechai and Esther saw that they saw beneath the the form. They took this. They took it seriously that there was a threat, but they understood that the threat was really just a kind of a message. A message about how they are, how they as the Jewish people were kind of losing sight of this deeper truth and, and obscuring the truth of the single simple source. So their job was to be loyal to the values of their king, the king of kings, even when it looked to be risky, problematic relative to the rule of the earthly king. So for that reason, Mordechai refused to bow down to Haman. 
And everyone was like, what are you doing? You're just antagonizing him. The Jews, they were saying to Mordechai, why are you being so obstinate? You're just bringing harm upon us. Or you're, bringing, you're bringing enmity against us. And he said, I, I'm not prepared to dishonor the king of kings in order to show honor to the form of this world. And even though it's true, I acknowledge that I'm raising, I'm arousing Haman's anger. I understand that I, at the end of the day, I'm interested in one thing, and that is to be loyal, to be loyal to the King of Kings, to the truth about the single simple source. And 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 in the end, what was amazing was that there was a single day where Haman was basically the most powerful man on on the planet, because King Achashverosh, the the king, was the really the the central leader. He was the most powerful leader of his day, and his prime minister was really his kind of acting leader. He had, on one day, developed, he had built a gallows upon which to hang Mordechai. So it didn't look very good. It looked very good for him, and it looked not very good for Mordechai. If someone had said to you, well, you know, within 24 hours, Mordechai is actually going to be the prime minister, and Haman is actually himself going to be hanging on the very gallows that he built for Mordechai, it would have been relatively simple to say that's that's a not a that's not a sound uh that's just not a sound analysis you know that's that's the 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 all the political columnists and strategists and uh philosophers who see well this is where things are going and this is where I see things developing they they would have been run out of town for saying well no within 24 hours it's literally going to flip it was not something that a reasonable person could conclude. And yet what we've learned from the story of Purim is that when you really, really see the truth that this world is, the, the experience of this world that we're having is all just a single, simple source, that Haman's power is on loan, that the king's power is on loan, that Mordechai's position at the at the bottom of the heap, so to speak, is is is, is being created from a source beyond this world. All of those things are not inherent to the form of life. The form of life is not literally running the show. There's something behind the form. Then you realize that things can change. Things can really change. Now, does that mean, therefore, you and I can just want it badly enough and thereby change it? I, it's not been my experience that I can do that, but to be loyal to the truth, to be aware of and hopeful that because I know the form of life is just moment to moment being created anew, I, I, I can live in my life without it experiencing, without experience, without experiencing it as a hopeless or unsafe or endlessly painful phenomenon that isn't, that's just never going to change. I, I, it feels, I'm not saying it doesn't feel to me at times that it's hopeless, but this understanding has been a, a, a meaningful, has had a meaningful impact in my ability to be in my life with really unpleasant, really difficult feelings, really foundationally shaking feelings, where I can somehow be with them and yet realize, okay, I can ride through these things. I can be with them. I, I, I they're painful, uh, but I don't have to give up. I don't have to kind of run away from my life. I don't have to succumb to some escape because my life is just so um, hopeless. I, I can 
I can live with that loyalty. And in fact, that's one of the things that Mordechai is most known for. Mordechai was called, the, the, the Talmud raises the question, why is Mordechai called in the Megillah? Why is he called Mordechai HaYehudi? Mordechai the Judean. Judah refers to one of the 12 tribes, Yehuda, but Mordechai was not from the tribe of Yehuda. He was from the tribe of Benjamin. So the, so the Talmud asks, why is it fa- in fact that Mordechai was called Mordechai the Yehudi, suggesting that he was from the tribe of Yehuda when he wasn't? And the answer the Gemara gives is because Mordechai did a defining, he had a defining value in life. He was what was called a denier of idolatry. And the Talmud says, kol ha-kaifer anyone who repudiates, who denies the notion of idolatry, Nikra Yehudi, he's called a Yehudi, which in fact is the modern Hebrew word for Jew. A Jew is a Yehudi. So Mordechai was a Yehudi. He was known as someone who was a, a Jew by virtue of his capacity to repudiate, to deny the idea of idolatry. What is idolatry? We've talked about it many times, that idolatry is the ascribing of power to something other than the single simple source. So Haman insisted on people bowing to him, and Mordechai said, "It's, it's, I can't do it." Well, Mor- Haman said, "Well, you're going to bring yourself into and your whole people into danger if you don't do it." And Mordechai said, "Look, you say what you say, and you do what you do, but your your power is not really yours; it's on loan to you, and the source of that power is telling me not to do these things. So I'm going to be loyal to the source behind everything. That's what my loyalty is." And that's, and that's, you know, I think of a story of a, a wonderful man who I knew who was married, who I know, who was married to his wife for, I don't know if it was 50 years, it was a long time. And unfortunately, she contracted ALS and then she, she passed. And he was inconsolable. He was really almost not functional for more than a year, just absolutely devastated by her loss and in, in the absence of that life partner. And even though he was conscious at a certain point that he, um, it was appropriate for him to find a life moving forward, it wasn't necessarily an honor to his wife's legacy that he'd go through life um, dysfunctional. It wasn't, uh, he wasn't being of help to his children and grandchildren, but he didn't know how. He didn't know how to, to, um, he didn't know how to find something other than debilitating depression. And there was a certain point where things totally changed. Things totally changed. And he woke up from his depression and he came to realize, you know, we had amazing years together and I am alive with still an opportunity to live and have relationships and and uh, accomplish things that are meaningful and valuable to me here and now. And it was amazing to see the difference in his experience. And it just it reminds me that we don't know when and how a state of mind will lift. We don't know when and how an experience of feeling really stuck could loosen. But we can know this, the stuckness that we might experience in whatever place in our lives we experience it, depression, um, an addiction, uh, uh, whatever, whatever place of stuckness we might experience, we might have all kinds of theories as to why we're stuck in the way we're stuck. It's because of this, this loved one died or because of this traumatic experience 
or because of this change in marital status or whatever it might be. All of those might be the reason we'd say, okay, that's the source of what's going on in my life right now. That is the cause. And then innocently we get caught up in, well, how do I fix it? And how do I understand it better? And how do I analyze and strategize and react to it better? And the truth is, is that, no, the truth is, is that the opportunity for transformation is always available when we're not bogging ourselves down, when we're not attaching ourselves to a power source that's not the actual power source, where we're not when we're not fixated on something that's not really the ultimate source. So we experience our pain, we experience the surges of pain, and yet we stay loyal to the idea that, like, you know, it looks to me like I should analyze and strategize and link this to XYZ event. It looks to me like I need to to figure it out, but I can also acknowledge that there's something called seeing the truth even as it feels to me seeing the truth of the formless, even as it looks to me so compelling. No, it's the form and the events and the circumstances. And I'm just going to keep being loyal. I'm just going to keep being loyal to that single truth, that single simple source. And the reset buttons come. The reset experiences come. And the opportunity of Purim is to be there when, 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 we, when we're loyal. We don't know when, where, and how the transformations come, but they do come. They absolutely come. And we play our part by by stand stepping back, by staying away from the analysis, by being willing to let go of the analysis, to let those painful feelings come, let them let them come and let them go, and let ourselves kind of ride that wave to that loyalty to the single simple source. It allows us to be free when the, when the reset comes. We get to flow with that reset. I want to wish everybody a beautiful and happy. Forum.